So throughout the course of church history, there have been certain times where particular men have, with great fervor, upheld and proclaimed the word of God to the effect that the society around them was completely transformed. You guys may have heard of the um, Great Awakening in Wales or even the Great Awakening in America where the church just exploded in growth and fervor and faithfulness. Um, And all all those moments tend to be traced back and start with uh, pastors and, and, and preachers, traveling preachers who are just taken aback by God's word and proclaiming and preaching God's word with great power. Um, There's a quote I found when I was researching these times regarding the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s where there was this guy named William Tyndall. You may have heard his last name before. I think they named a publishing company after him. But William Tyndall was a a Catholic priest back then in that area of the world. The Catholics, that's all he had, right? Um, he was a Catholic priest and wanted to translate the scriptures into English so his fellow English countrymen could read it on their own. But the, the thought at that time was that the common people, right, the, the lay people like you and I, right, couldn't be trusted with the scriptures, that they would mess it up or misinterpret it. And the, the priest and the uh, pope kind of had a foothold and a, could corner the market on God's word. Um, but this guy, William Tyndall, was just defiant and just committed to, I'm going to translate this so that everyone can read it. Everyone needs to be able to read God's word for themselves. And at one point, he said this to his supervisor, his priest that was above him, who was telling him not to you know, translate the scriptures, and he said this, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of scripture the now dust. So he looks this other priest right in the face and he says, if God gives me the years, in other words, if if you decide not to kill me for this, right, I'm going to translate the scriptures such that every boy in my village is going to know the Bible better than you do. Um, And he went on to create the first English translation and went on to be killed basically for doing so. Um, Then there was a Another example of John Calvin, who was, you've probably heard that name before, one of the reformers during that time, upholding the scripture and making it available and teaching it to God's people around him, which had a very transformative effect on their society. One of the commentators I read about the story of Josiah is Philip Ryken, and he says this regarding the Reformation and Calvin. He says this, Geneva, was a town he was in at the time, Geneva's spiritual transformation began with worship, as Reformation always does. The more John Calvin preached the gospel, the more Bible-focused and Christ-centered the city's worship services became. But that was only the beginning. The Reformation transformed education. Soon girls, as well as boys, were attending the Academy of Geneva to become better prepared to build the church and benefit society. Calvin and his colleagues were concerned about the body as well as the soul. So they started a hospital and developed a sewer system to promote public health. In their care for the poor, they welcomed thousands of refugees in Jesus' name. This is what almost always happens when a leader has a heart for God and for his word. People follow. He goes on to talk about how that same thing can apply even on a micro level in our homes and says, when fathers and mothers genuinely love the gospel, their spiritual affections have a life-shaping influence on their sons and daughters. The more we love God's word, the more people around us will love it too. 
And I share all that because it's just more um, recent, if I can call 500 years ago recent, examples of how when God takes a hold of someone's heart and people and a leader begins to proclaim and preach God's word, people can be transformed. The society itself can be transformed. And that's what we see in the life of Josiah. We see a guy who becomes king at a very young age, values God's word. We're going to read the story about how they, they find a copy of God's word buried in the temple underneath all these idols, proclaims it to the people, and this, the whole society of Israel goes from a people who are chasing after idols, worshiping idols, have completely turned their back on God, is completely transformed during his reign to a people that by and large are worshiping God, following God, and turning aside from idols. We see in this in your Bibles, you'll probably see a subtitle under, under the chapters that may say something like Josiah's reforms, because truly the nation of Israel was reformed, reshaped, restructured during his reign. Second um, Kings twenty three twenty five describes him like this. It says, Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses nor did any king arise after him. So just to give you a little more historical context with that, Josiah's granddad, his name was Manasseh, and the scriptures say he was one of the worst kings, if not the worst king that Judah had. So his granddad was just the opposite, right? Was leading people into, worship, into idol worship, building altars to these unknown gods, these false gods, and counseling people to worship them, pointing people away from God. And now Josiah comes in, his dad, whose name's Amon, um, only reigned for a couple years when Josiah was six to eight years old. His dad was assassinated, didn't last long. And then at eight, Josiah becomes king. And then at 12, he begins reforming the country and pointing them back to God. Um, and one of the things I love about the story of Josiah's reforms is that there's not these miracles. You know, we've, most of the greatest stories ever told series has been about these miraculous things like fire coming down and, you know, lighting up a, a sacrifice or, you know, parting the Red Sea, right, those kinds of things. Or even like some real great dramatic heroic act like little David killing this big giant Philistine. But what you have here is a little boy reforming an entire society, not through any miraculous work, but just by simply being faithful to the position and the influence that God had given him. And so we're going to walk through this story and make three observations. And the first one is going to be this, is that kids are capable. Kids are capable. I kind of left that hanging, probably thinking kids are capable of what? I would answer this by saying this, usually a lot more than we give them credit for. Kids are often capable of way more than we give them credit for. They're, they're capable of understanding God, of loving God, of having a zeal for God, and influencing others for God. It's crazy to me to think about the guy that the scriptures say was the greatest king Israel ever had. This, the author even elevates him above David. The greatest king Israel had was an eight-year-old when he came into that office. Now, to be fair not to exaggerate the point, right? He, he had grown up. By the time he made all these reforms and started like tearing down idols and stuff, it was later on, he was 12. And 
I don't know about you, but like the only thing scarier than an eight-year-old being in charge might be a 12-year-old being in charge, right? I mean, that, that sounds like that could potential for disaster. But think about that. As a 12-year-old, he became the most faithful, obedient king Israel had ever known and then continued in that all the way into his 20s. He was truly a, a great leader and a remarkable um, young man, to say the least. In Second uh, Chronicles 34.3, it says this, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved and metal images. So what made him great is that he obeyed and followed God, even as someone who was not very old. It says that Josiah loved and understood God, even as an eight-year-old. And so, one of the things that encourages me with is that idea that we need to give our kids credit and understand that they have the ability to understand who God is, to love him, to learn about who he is, and to embrace those things. Um, That's one of the reasons we have kids in service here at Crosspoint at a younger age, is that we value the role of parents that they play in raising up their kids, teaching them to love and obey the Lord, even at a very young age. I'll never forget when um, Emma and I were pregnant with our first, we were meeting with a, a lady who was talking to us about what it's like to raise kids in a godly home, what it's like to bring your children up in the Lord. Um, and that had happened for both of us and our families, but we'd never just put a lot of thought into how we were going to do that as parents. And I remember one of the questions I had for this lady was like, well, when do you, when do you start, right? Like, do we start teaching our kids about Jesus? Like, because, you know, I'm thinking, like, as a two, three-year-old, they don't they're gonna be able to understand. Are we going to sit there and, like, read the Bible to them when they're two and three? They're not going to, you know, when do they start be able to understand that enough to start teaching it to them? And she kind of looked at us kind of funnily and, and patiently and said, well, the goal is you want your kids to never remember a time when they didn't believe in Jesus. Like, you want them to grow up in such a way that they can't remember a time where they weren't hearing about, learning about Jesus, learning things of God. And of course, I've, in my mind, I'm kind of pushing back, like, well, I don't just want to teach them, like, to be religious, right? To just do things of God, do church rhythms without it being from their heart and things like that. And she said, well, are you going to teach them the alphabet before they can read? It's like, well, yeah, I guess so. Think about it, like, we teach our kids things all the time, like the ABC song, way before they know what those sounds they mean and stuff like that. But we're teaching them to do things that adults do to read in a way adults do. We're, we're bringing them up in that direction, confident they will learn and grasp those things and setting a foundation for it. So yeah, you're going to have your kids singing worship songs, right, and talking about the scriptures probably before they fully understand what that means, but it's all part of them being grown up, brought up in a way that they are taught to love, honor, and cherish the Lord. And so like I said, we we value that here at Crosspoint, and we want to see the kids at an earlier age in the service, as early as possible, um, doing that. And so that can be um, a challenge for us as parents because it means our, our focus can be a little divided when we have little ones in the service. But here's the deal. like When you have kids, there are certain conveniences that you just give up, right? Um, one of those I learned after we had kids is eating a hot meal. 
We understand this, right? Like you probably didn't before you had kids, or I don't know, maybe you wouldn't have done it. But you understand after you have kids that like my, my right or my ability to like, as soon as the meal is done or as the food is served, to just sit down and enjoy it is gone. I'll never forget um, when we first had our, our first kid at a Thanksgiving and there was just, you know, all this food spread out. And then uh, my grandma was like, hey, um, can, can I hold Jackson? I'm like, yep, <laughs> there you go, right? And like, it's just funny because you have this picture of like, oh, you always want to hold him and never want to let him go. But then like someone offers to hold him and it's sitting like that. And it's like, yes, that would be great. I would like to just enjoy a meal without having to try to take care of someone else at the same time. But that's the reality when you move into parenthood is that your focus is divided because you're no longer just thinking about your own physical nourishment. You're thinking about the physical nourishment of your kid. And so when you're eating a meal, you're kind of going back and forth. And guys, that's what it ought to look like when you have your kids in here in a worship service is that as a parent, you recognize you are no longer just responsible for you and God in that relationship, but you have a responsibility to bring this child up. And we see Sunday mornings as a great opportunity for that, for you to help them, encourage them, learn the things of God, just like they will learn the alphabet, learn how to sit in the worship service, learn how to take notes, learn how to watch and sit still and listen. And we get it just like if you take your little one to a restaurant Every once in a while, there may be a time where you just have to get them up and just leave for a few minutes, right? Because it's just like they're having a meltdown. That's going to happen sometimes, but that's okay. Because we believe as a church that it's worth it. It's worth the benefits of having them in here. It's worth the fact that they're getting to sit and watch mom and dad, and those of you that maybe don't have kids, watch what it looks like for adults to love God, cherish his word, lift their hands up and praise to him, and learn this is a big deal to these people. These people, my family, and those around me, God's word is a really important thing to them. If nothing else, they're getting that. And oftentimes what we find is they're getting way more than we would give them credit for. Just to share my own example of this, I was talking to one of my daughters not too long ago, who's pretty young, and we were talking about sin and just the, you know, the ever-present effects on us, how we always have to fight it, how it's always tugging at us and tempting us. And this was recently, I had this conversation um, when she was seven, and she said, oh, like, like the scroll. And I was like, like, like the scroll? What are you... Like, what scroll? What are you talking about? She goes, in the sermon a while back. Guys, I looked it up. It had been seven months since the sermon she was talking about. So something I said triggered a memory she had about a sermon she heard seven months ago from the book of Zechariah, of all places, about a scroll that was hovering around that the guy had preached about um, as a list of our sins that we couldn't get rid of, that we need Jesus to get rid of the account of sin for us. She remembered that from seven months ago as a seven-year-old. Kids are way more capable and way more attentive than we often give them credit for than what it looks like they are. Second thing I want us to see from the life of Josiah is that our pursuit of God must be relentless. Our pursuit of God must be relentless. It's funny the the language used about Josiah, because he, he basically does two things when he comes into power and he begins these reforms, right? So he sees how people are not following God. He loves God. He wants to see his countrymen, his people love God. He wants to see things transformed. And so he does two things. The first thing he does is he destroys all the idols. We'll read about that in a second. He just goes on this 
rampage throughout all of the country, just smashing and beating these idols into dust. Just like, we are not going to have this anymore, not on my watch. And then he leads people to cling to God. So he's proclaiming God's word, pointing people to Jesus. And it's, it's, it's both of those things, right? He's getting rid of the sin, getting rid of the stumbling blocks, getting rid of the idols, and asking people to cling to, to, to the Lord. I said to Jesus. He didn't know Jesus at the time, but unbeknownst to him, right, to cling to Jesus. So killing sin. Let's look at this first. Second Chronicles 34.4 says this. This is what Josiah did. And keep in mind, he'll talk about how he came back to Jerusalem. So this wasn't just what he ordered. Like he was, he was personally involved in these acts. It says this, And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars and stood, um, that stood above them. And he broke into pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. Listen to how just violent and extreme this language is. He broke, he shattered, he, he ground it into dust and scattered it over the graves of those who worshipped it. Verse 5, he also burned the bones of the priest on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon and as far as Naphtali and all their ruins around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder. So I guess like at first he was breaking them down. Then he was like, that's not good enough. I don't want these things to even be recognizable. Let's beat them into dust. And later he was like, even the dust is too, is too much. Let's beat the dust into powder so that if the wind blows, it's just swept away. So he goes to these great lengths to get rid of this sin, probably because he realizes as long as these things are there, the temptation to return to them still exists. And so he didn't just say, hey guys, let's turn our attention this way and worship the Lord instead and just kind of, just kind of get away from those things. No, he says we're going to beat them and destroy them and eliminate any possibility in so much as it depends on us that people would return back to these things. And he does it with extreme prejudice. And one of the things that makes me think of is just the, the idea that the level of aggression we have towards sin indicates the seriousness that we take the threat of it, right? Like he said, this is a real threat. Like people could really turn back to this stuff. So we are going to go all out to destroy it and to get rid of it. And I thought about that in our own lives of what that looks like, right? To, that the idea that what God has called us to is not just to be in his word and to love him and follow him and just, and just hope that we, by doing so, we kind of passively ignore these things that want to divert our attention from him, these sins that can so easily entangle. But, but what God has called us to is to not just pursue God, but to actively destroy anything that comes up that might distract us from him and cause us to find our satisfaction in those things other than him. And one example of that actually happened recently in my small group. I'm thankful that there's a I get to be in a small group where another guy is leading it because as a pastor, it's, it's, sometimes it can be awkward like preaching the sermon and then leading the small group, right? Because then you come in and you're like, hey guys, well, what did y'all think about the sermon today? Did I do a good job? So it's nice to have someone else leading it for that and many other reasons. And one of the things uh, my small group leader, Thomas, did is he basically said, hey guys, I want us to start asking each other harder questions. And we talked, he and I, before about how um, pornography had been a struggle for us a long time ago. It's not something that's been a struggle in a very long time. And he's like, yeah, but, but man, that's something that can so 
easily creep back in. So I'm just going to start asking that question every week just to make sure like that we put that to death fully, that we don't give it any breathing room, that we don't give it any chance for our hearts to return to that. And if that does happen, that it would be recognized and acknowledged so that we can deal with it. And I appreciate that so much, this idea that, yeah, there's this, there is a threat over here and we are going to deal with it and we are going to get serious about it. So killing sin is one part of it. The other way Josiah led them is clinging to God, right? And there are, there are all kinds of ways we do that, but one of the primary ways we cling to God um, that we see in this story specifically is by reading to and adhering to the Word of God. So there's this, there's this really cool story. I don't know why, for some reason, it just sounds like kind of like cryptic and mystical in my mind where um, and, and when it talks about Josiah, that the book of the law is found in the temple. So they had, they had taken the temple of God and filled it with idols, which is just crazy, right? That like, think about the history of the temple that Solomon built and all its glory and grandeur, all of it designed to display the majesty and the gloriousness of God, right? And they had gone so far from that because of all these bad kings that they had just filled it with a bunch of idols, and so one of the first things Josiah did was to, you know, to cleanse the temple, to get rid of all those things and to repair it, to rebuild it. And in that process, they came across a book. Most scholars think it's the book of, Deut- of Deuteronomy. They came across a book, some scripture that they had just lost, that had just been forgotten. And I don't know why, but when I hear that story, it just kind of conjures up an image of like a, maybe like a movie from like a medieval time setting, right? Where it's like, sire, we have found this book an ancient relic from times of old that has been long forgotten, right? And the guy's like, okay, we must deliver it to the king at once. And Hilkai, we must speak of this to no one, right? I don't, this is kind of what I imagine, like there's this really kind of cryptic um, thing here. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 22, 8. And Hilkai, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I've found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And so they bring the book to Josiah, and the first thing he does is like, all right, gather everyone up. We're all going to listen to this, right? If, if it really was the book of Deuteronomy, that's, that's a pretty long book, right? And he just says, we're all going to get everyone together, and we're going to read it, and everyone is going to hear this. He just has this desire to, to proclaim God's word to his people. It says, and the king went up to the house of the Lord. And with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people both small and great, and read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. So he brings it and he reads it to everyone. And it's encouraging to me how much he cherished the word of God and how much of a priority it was for this king to proclaim and make known the word of God among his people. So we see Josiah's zeal to kill the things, to destroy, to, to turn into dust and then turn into powder, anything that might draw people's attention and affection away from God, and then proclaiming God's word as a means of bringing people back to him, and we see his society completely transformed because of it. And then lastly, a thing we learn from this story is that knowing and following God is an end in itself. And the reason we make that observation and, and that see that in this story is because it's kind of a sad story because in the end, um, I hate to spoil it, but Josiah actually dies. That's, that's what happens to Josiah. He, he dies. Um, 
But not just that. After Josiah dies, you guys probably know the story, Judah, the last remaining remnants of God's people who are living in the land, God had promised. Babylon comes in, destroys Jerusalem, claims the city, takes God's people into exile, and Israel as they knew it at this time existed no more. They were no longer a nation and a people of their own and a land that they could claim and defend. They were just slaves to a foreign country living outside of the land God had promised them. And it's odd that that happened because Josiah did everything right. Like, there's no, like, little flaw mentioned in the book of Josiah. Like, oh, yeah, but he did this, like there is with everyone else. Like, he did everything right. And what's really crazy, really, really crazy about this is that he knew that destruction was going to happen. Like, he was fully aware when he made these reforms, when he made these changes, when he destroyed the idols and pointed people back to God, that nothing he did would stop that from happening because his grandfather and, and the fathers after that had been so wicked and turned the people away from God to such a degree that God was going to send them into exile no matter what Josiah did. And he told them that. Let's look here in Second Kings 22. It says this, this is what's said to Josiah by, by a prophet. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king Judah has read, the king of Judah has read, so that in Deuteronomy where it talks about God, if God's people do this, if they follow him, good things will happen. If they don't, bad things will happen. This prophet is saying all the bad things they've done and the punishment that comes after that, that's all going to happen. Because they have forsaken me, and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. Like, I don't know about you, but I read that, and I think, you'd almost expect Josiah to go, well, you know what then? To heck with it, right? Like, if God is going to send us into exile regardless, why, why would we even waste our time trying to destroy these idols, proclaim his word, and bring people back to him? But it's because Josiah saw knowing and loving God as an end in itself, not a means to get something else. Knowing and loving God was the end. That was the point. That was the goal. Not doing that so that we can then get some other benefit or some other thing from that. And it's a good reminder for us, especially if, like, if you've been in church for a while and you've, you're raising your family in church and, and walking with God's people and doing godly things, things of God, pursuing him is just kind of a part of your life, right? It can be tempting to value all that because of the other things that get you, right? For some of us, like, 90% of our friends are in this body, and so, like, if we were to turn away from God and his people, like, that would, we would lose almost all of our social circles and interaction. We would lose the, the structure and stability that comes with having this anchor of this faith that we come to, of this body of people that, that knows us and cares for us, right? Like, there's all these other benefits that we get from walking with the Lord and honoring and following his ways, that we have to be careful that we're not seeking God for those other things, but we are seeking God because he is the best and greatest thing for our souls and for our lives. Because he is the best and nothing is sweeter than him. I once had a, a fellow pastor share with me this quote. It says this, If you would gladly embrace all the benefits of heaven, 
even if you knew Jesus was not there, but you would still gladly embrace all the benefits of all the great things it talks about that heaven will be like, but in the absence of Jesus, you will likely have neither. Right? That like, Jesus is the reward. Not all the ways our lives get better because we follow him. Sometimes following him make our lives worse, and there are some things that will get better typically as we do that, but that's not why we do it. We do it because he is that great and that sweet, and he is the great reward for and from our faith. So it's just a great example of Josiah, a guy that seeks God, not as an end, means to an end, but as an end in himself. That same commentator, Philip Ryken, said this regarding this idea that Josiah knew that Israel was going, that Judah was going to fall regardless, but chose to follow God anyways. And he points us to this idea that we don't get to decide what role we play in God's kingdom, right? I mean, I'm sure Josiah would have loved it if God would have given him a role such that by his leadership, God's wrath would have been averted and, and the kingdom of Israel would have been lifted up and restored and, and preserved because of what he did. But instead, God still used him, right? I mean, God still uses Josiah. Like, for all we know, we wouldn't have the book of Deuteronomy without Josiah, right? God still used him to strengthen people's faith and, and make people cling to God but not in a way that resulted in the way that he would have liked, that he would have chosen. And it's the same for all of us, that when we're faithful to God, he's using us in a way, but we may not know what the results are, and they may not even be the results that we would like, but we have to trust God is going to use it. I work at a missions organization called I Go Global, and we teach this idea, we call it ancient work, that if you think of a timeline of God's work throughout the world with Genesis over here and Revelation over here, right? That all of us play some little sliver of a part that God has dropped us into, right? That God is taking us as individuals, using us as a tiny little part of this great, bigger work that he is doing. And sometimes that may not end great for us or those around us. Sometimes it will. But the point is that we would be faithful with the influence in the time that God has given us. And Philip Ryken said it like this. He said, serving God faithfully is always the right thing to do, no matter what the immediate results happen to be. Some of the things we do for the gospel will turn out to make an eternal difference. By staying faithful to the word of God, we will also help other Christians persevere through dark and desperate days. We can leave the results up to God. Our calling is to keep doing the ongoing work of reformation as Josiah did. Then maybe... We will receive the same high praise that Jesus gave to Mary of Bethany. When she anointed his head with oil, Jesus said, she has done what she could. Which is all that any of us can do. You guys remember that story that when Mary anointed Jesus, all the people around her were criticizing her for wasting the oil, saying she could have spit that on the poor or done something else. She just wasted that and Jesus comes to her defense and said, hey guys, she did what she could. Like she took the situation and the time and the resources that God had given her and did her best with it to honor Jesus. And that's all any of us can do. We don't control the results. The reality is you, you may do everything right as a parent with your kids and they may still not believe. But Jesus would look at that and say, he did what he could. She did what she could. 
they did the best they could with the time and the influence that I gave them. And we have to trust God with the results of that. I think there's a reminder, too, that even though Josiah is presented as this perfect king, right, this breath of fresh air in this wake of evil and wicked kings, that finally God raised up a king who would lead them in the right direction, and it still wasn't enough because their sin was too big. Sound familiar? No matter how good we do, guys, it's not good enough to meet God's standard of perfection because all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen away. Together we have turned aside and chased things that don't honor and don't please God, and the punishment for that is death. There's a really interesting story when it talks about, goes into detail about all the idols he smashed and how he turned some into dust and turned some into powder and sprinkled the, the dust of dead men's bones over it just to completely desecrate those things. There's one point where he goes into this valley outside Jerusalem, which would later become known as Gehenna, where they would throw all their trash and refuse and they would light it on fire. And the Bible uses that as a figurative image of hell, the place where the, the fire never goes out, where, where the worm continually is eating, things are decaying. It's just this nasty, kind of God-forsaken place. And in that place, during Josiah's time, they were actually sacrificing their children to the god Melech. And so there was, this became a practice that they adopted from other pagans that parents would literally take their kids to this place in Gehenna and kill their kids as a sacrifice to these foreign gods. And Josiah goes down into that place, literally descends into hell to destroy the bad things that are taking place there in order to try to deliver and save God's people from those things. Similarly, we see scriptures that talk about how Jesus descended into the earth. He experienced very real death, taking that on himself to deliver us from our sins. Because what Josiah couldn't do as good as he was, Jesus could. That Jesus brings a deliverance better than anything a mere king could do. Because Jesus did not simply turn us away from our sin and, and, and destroy the things that we were worshiping. He actually took the punishment for those things we were worshiping and bore that punishment on himself that we might be fully restored to right relationship with God through faith in him. We'll close with Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9, which says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this story of Josiah and what we can learn from it, um, all the things we can learn from it, but God, mostly thank you that that, you, that Jesus is even better, that as great as Josiah was, that you have provided by sending your son a king, a priest, a sacrifice greater than anything that is the culmination of all the things that the Old Testament couldn't quite get, that you have done it through sending Jesus. That we might not ride these waves of being in your favor and disfavor and pleasing you and displeasing you and your anger being faltering to and fro, not knowing 
what will happen to us, God, that you have fully redeemed and restored us in a way that none of these kings, prophets, or priests could in the Old Testament. God, may we embrace that. May we magnify that in our minds and love you through what Jesus has done. We pray in his name. Amen.